Hi everyone, this is Robert. Welcome to The Well-Told Tale. Every week we bring you the finest science fiction and fantasy stories ever written. Today we return to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. We have reached the halfway point in our story. More wonders await our heroes. But the mystery hanging over all of this remains. Who is Captain Nemo? Why is he here in this wondrous submarine, cut off from the rest of civilization? It's time to pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy part seven of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. Part two, chapter one, the Indian Ocean. We now come to the second part of our journey under the sea. The first ended with the moving scene in the Coral Cemetery, which left such a deep impression on my mind. Thus, in the midst of this great sea, Captain Nemo's life was passing, even to his grave, which he had prepared in one of its deepest abysses. There, not one of the ocean's monsters could trouble the last sleep of the crew of the Nautilus, of those friends riveted to each other in death as in life. Nor any man, either, had added the captain. Still the same fierce, implacable defiance towards human society. I could no longer content myself with the theory which satisfied Conseil. That worthy fellow persisted in seeing in the commander of the Nautilus one of those unknown savants who returned mankind contempt for indifference. For him, he was a misunderstood genius who, tired of Earth's deceptions, had taken refuge in this inaccessible medium where he might follow his instincts freely. To my mind, this explains but one side of Captain Nemo's character. Indeed, the mystery of that last night during which we had been chained in prison, the sleep, and the precaution so violently taken by the captain of snatching from my eyes the glass I had raised to sweep the horizon, the mortal wound of the man due to an unaccountable shock of the Nautilus, all put me on a new track. No, Captain Nemo was not satisfied with shunning man. His formidable apparatus not only suited his instinct for freedom, but perhaps also the design of some terrible retaliation. At this moment, nothing is clear to me. I catch but a glimpse of light amidst all the darkness, and I must confine myself to writing as events shall dictate. That day, the 24th of January, 1868, at noon, the second officer came to take the altitude of the sun. I mounted the platform, lit a cigar, and watched the operation. It seemed to me that the man did not understand French, for several times I made remarks in a loud voice, which must have drawn from him some involuntary sign of attention if he had understood them, but he remained undisturbed and dumb. As he was taking observations with the sextant, one of the sailors of the Nautilus, the strong man who had accompanied us on our first submarine excursion to the island of Crespo, came to clean the glasses of the lantern. I examined the fittings of the apparatus, the strength of which was increased a hundredfold by lenticular rings placed similar to those in a lighthouse and which projected their brilliance in a horizontal plane. The electric lamp was combined in such a way as to give its most powerful light. Indeed, it was produced in vacuo, which ensured both its steadiness and its intensity. This vacuum economised the graphite points between which the luminous arc was developed, an important point of economy for Captain Nemo, who could not easily have replaced them, and under these conditions their waste was imperceptible. When the Nautilus was ready to continue its submarine journey, I went down to the saloon. The panel was closed, and the course marched direct west. 
we were furrowing the waters of the Indian Ocean, a vast liquid plain with a surface area of 1,200 million acres, and whose waters are so clear and transparent that anyone leaning over them would turn giddy. The Nautilus usually floated between 50 and 100 fathoms deep. We went on for some days. To anyone but myself who had a great love for the sea, the hours would have seemed long and monotonous. But the daily walks on the platform when I steeped myself in the reviving air of the ocean, the sight of the rich waters through the windows of the saloon, the books in the library, the compiling of my memoirs took up all my time and left me not a moment of ennui or weariness. For some days we saw a great number of aquatic birds, sea mews or gulls. Some were cleverly killed and, prepared in a certain way, made very acceptable water game. Amongst large-winged birds, carried a long distance from all lands and resting upon the waves from the fatigue of their flight, I saw some magnificent albatrosses uttering discordant cries like the braying of an ass and birds belonging to the family of the longwings. As to the fish, they always provoked our admiration when we surprised the secrets of their aquatic life through the open panels. I saw many kinds which I had never before had a chance of observing. From the 21st to the 23rd of January, the Nautilus went at the rate of 250 leagues in 24 hours, being 540 miles or 22 miles an hour. If we recognised so many different varieties of fish, it was because, attracted by the electric light, they tried to follow us. The greater part, however, were soon distanced by our speed, though some kept their place in the waters of the Nautilus for a time. The morning of the 24th, we observed Keeling Island, a coral formation planted with magnificent cocos, and which had been visited by Mr. Darwin and Captain Fitzroy. The Nautilus skirted the shores of this desert island for a little distance. Its nets brought up numerous species of polypi and curious mollusk shells, but soon Keeling Island disappeared from the horizon, and our course was directed to the northwest in the direction of the Indian Peninsula. From Keeling Island, our course was slower and more variable, often taking us into great depths. Several times they made use of the inclined planes, which certain internal levers placed obliquely to the waterline. In that way, we went about two miles, but without ever obtaining the greatest depths of the Indian Sea, which soundings of 7,000 fathoms have never reached. As to the temperature of the lower strata, the thermometer invariably indicated four degrees above zero. I only observed that in the upper regions the water was always colder in the high levels than at the surface of the sea. On the 25th of January the ocean was entirely deserted. The Nautilus passed the day on the surface, beating the waves with its powerful screw and making them rebound to a great height. Who under such circumstances would not have taken it for a gigantic cetacean? Three parts of this day I spent on the platform. I watched the sea. Nothing on the horizon till about four o'clock, a steamer running west on our counter. Her masts were visible for an instant, but she could not see the Nautilus being too low in the water. I fancied this steamboat belonged to the P.O. Company, which runs from Ceylon to Sydney, touching at King George's Point and Melbourne. At five o'clock in the evening, before that fleeting twilight which binds night to day in tropical areas, Conseil and I were astonished by a curious spectacle. It was a shoal of argonauts travelling on the surface of the ocean. We could count several hundreds. They belonged to the tubercle kind, which are peculiar to the Indian seas. These graceful mollusks moved backwards by means of their locomotive tube, through which they propelled the water already drawn in. 
Of their eight tentacles, six were elongated and stretched out floating on the water, whilst the other two, rolled up flat, were spread to the wing like a light sail. I saw their spiral-shaped and fluted shells, which Cuvier justly compares to an elegant skiff, a boat indeed. It bears the creature which secretes it without adhering to it. For nearly an hour the Nautilus floated in the midst of this shoal of mollusks, Then I know not what sudden fright they took, but as if at a signal, every sail was furled, the arms folded, the body drawn in, the shells turned over, changing their centre of gravity, and the whole fleet disappeared under the waves. Never did the ships of a squadron manoeuvre with more unity. At that moment, night fell suddenly, and the reeds, scarcely raised by the breeze, lay peaceably under the sides of the Nautilus. The next day, 26th of January, we cut the equator at the 82nd meridian and entered the northern hemisphere. During the day, a formidable troop of sharks accompanied us, terrible creatures which multiply in these seas and make them very dangerous. They were Citracio philippi sharks, with brown backs and whitish bellies, armed with eleven rows of teeth, eyed sharks, their throat being marked with a large black spot, surrounded with white like an eye. There were also some Isabella sharks, with rounded snouts marked with dark spots. These powerful creatures often hurled themselves at the windows of the saloon with such violence as to make us feel very insecure. At such times Ned Land was no longer master of himself. He wanted to go to the surface and harpoon the monsters, particularly certain smooth-hound sharks, whose mouth is studded with teeth like a mosaic, and large tiger sharks nearly six yards long, the last named of which seemed to excite him more particularly, but the Nautilus, accelerating her speed, easily left the most rapid of them behind. The 27th of January, at the entrance of the vast Bay of Bengal, we met repeatedly a forbidding spectacle dead bodies floating on the surface of the water. They were the dead of the Indian villages carried by the Ganges to the level of the sea, and which the vultures, the only undertakers of the country, had not been able to devour, but the sharks did not fail to help them at their funeral work. About seven o'clock in the evening, the Nautilus, half-immersed, was sailing in a sea of milk. At first sight, the ocean seemed lactified. Was it the effect of the lunar rays? No, for the moon, scarcely two days old, was still lying hidden under the horizon in the rays of the sun. The whole sky, though lit by the sidereal rays, seemed black by contrast with the whiteness of the waters. Conseil could not believe his eyes and questioned me as to the cause of this strange phenomenon. Happily, I was able to answer him. It is called Milk Sea, I explained. A large extent of white wavelets, often to be seen on the coasts of Amboina and in these parts of the sea. But, sir, said Conseil, can you tell me what causes such an effect? For I suppose the water is not really turned into milk. Uh, No, my boy, and the whiteness which surprises you is caused only by the presence of myriads of infusoria, a sort of luminous little worm, gelatinous and without colour, of the thickness of a hair, whose length is not more than seven thousandths of an inch. These insects adhere to one another, sometimes for several leagues. Several leagues, exclaimed Conseil. Yes, my boy, and you need not try to compute the numbers of these infusoria. You will not be able, for, if I am not mistaken, ships have floated on these milk seas for more than forty miles. Towards midnight, 
The sea suddenly resumed its usual colour, but behind us, even to the limits of the horizon, the sky reflected the whitened waves, and for a long time seemed impregnated with the vague glimmerings of an aurora borealis. Chapter 2 A Novel Proposal of Captain Nemo's On the 28th of February, when at noon the Nautilus came to the surface of the sea, there was land in sight about eight miles to westward. The first thing I noticed was a range of mountains about 2,000 feet in high, the shapes of which were most capricious. On taking the bearings, I knew that we were nearing the island of Ceylon, the pearl which hangs from the lobe of the Indian Peninsula. Captain Nemo and his second appeared at this moment. The captain glanced at the map, then turning to me said, "'The island of Ceylon, noted for its pearl fisheries. Would you like to visit one of them, Monsieur Aronnax?' "'Certainly, Captain.' Well, the thing is easy, though if we see the fisheries we shall not see the fishermen. The annual exportation has not yet begun. Never mind, I will give orders to make for the Gulf of Manar, where we shall arrive in the night. The captain said something to his second, who immediately went out. Soon the Nautilus returned to her native element, and the manometer showed that she was about thirty feet deep. Well, sir, said Captain Nemo. You and your companions shall visit the Bank of Manar, and if by chance some fisherman should be there, we shall see him at work. Agreed, Captain. Oh, by the by, Monsieur Aronnax, you are not afraid of sharks? Sharks? exclaimed I. This question seemed a very hard one. Well, continued Captain Nemo, I admit, Captain, that I am not yet very familiar with that kind of fish. We are accustomed to them replied Captain Nemo, and in time you will be too. However, we shall be armed, and on the road we may be able to hunt some of the tribe. It is interesting. So, till tomorrow, sir, and early. This said in a careless tone, Captain Nemo left the saloon. Now, if you were invited to hunt the bear in the mountains of Switzerland, what would you say? Very well, tomorrow we will go and hunt the bear. If you were asked to hunt the lion in the plains of Atlas, or the tiger in the Indian jungles, what would you say? Ha-ha! It seems we are going to hunt the tiger or the lion, but when you are invited to hunt the shark in its natural element, you would perhaps reflect before accepting the invitation. As for myself, I passed my hand over my forehead, on which stood large drops of cold perspiration— let us reflect, said I, and take our time. Hunting otters in submarine forests, as we did in the island of Crespo, will pass. But going up and down at the bottom of the sea, where one is almost certain to meet sharks, is quite another thing. I know well that in certain countries, particularly in the Andaman Islands, the natives never hesitate to attack them with a dagger in one hand and a running noose in the other. But I also know that few who affront these creatures ever return alive. However, I am not a native, and if I were, I think a little hesitation in this case would not be ill-timed. At this moment, Conseil and the Canadian entered, quite composed and even joyous. They knew not what awaited them. "'Faith, sir,' said Ned Land, "'your Captain Nemo, the devil take him, has just made us a very pleasant offer.' "'Ah,' said I, "'you know?' "'If agreeable to you, sir,' interrupted Conseil, "'the commander of the Nautilus has invited us to visit the magnificent Ceylon fisheries tomorrow in your company. He did it kindly, and behaved like a real gentleman.' He said nothing more. "'Nothing more, sir, except that he had already spoken to you of this little walk.' "'Sir,' 
said Conseil. Would you give us some details of the pearl fishery? As to the fishing itself, I asked, or the incidents, which? On the fishing, replied the Canadian. Before entering upon the ground, it is well to know something about it. Very well, sit down, my friends, and I will teach you. Ned and Conseil seated themselves on an ottoman, and the first thing the Canadian asked was, "'Sir, what is a pearl?' "'My worthy Ned,' I answered, "'to the poet a pearl is a tear of the sea, to the Orientals it is a drop of dew solidified, to the ladies it is a jewel of an oblong shape, of a brilliancy of -of mother-of-pearl substance which they wear on their fingers, their necks, or their ears. For the chemist,' It is a mixture of phosphate and carbonate of lime, with a little gelatin, and lastly, for naturalists, it is simply a morbid secretion of the organ that produces the mother-of-pearl amongst living bivalves. "'Branch of mollusks,' said Conseil. "'Precisely so, my learned Conseil, and amongst these testaceae, the air-shell, the turbots in a word, all those which secrete mother-of-pearl, that is, the blue, bluish, violet, or white substance which lines the interior of their shells, are capable of producing pearls.' "'Mussels, too?' asked the Canadian. "'Yes, mussels of certain waters in Scotland, Wales, Ireland, Saxony, Bohemia, and France.' "'Good. For the future I shall pay attention,' replied the Canadian. "'But,' I continued, "'the particular mollusk which secretes the pearl is the pearl oyster. "'The pearl is nothing but a nacreous formation "'deposited in a globular form, "'either adhering to the oyster shell "'or buried in the folds of the creature. "'On the shell it is fast, in the flesh it is loose, "'but always has for a kernel a small hard substance.' maybe a barren egg, maybe a grain of sand, around which the pearly matter deposits itself year after year successfully, and by thin concentric layers. "'Are many pearls found in the same oyster?' asked Conseil. "'Yes, my boy, some are a perfect casket. One oyster has been mentioned, though I allow myself to doubt it, as having contained no less than a hundred and fifty sharks.' "'A hundred and fifty sharks!' exclaimed Nedland. Uh, "'Did I say sharks?' said I hurriedly. "'I meant to say a hundred and fifty pearls. "'Sharks would not be sense.' "'Certainly not,' said Conseil. "'But will you tell us now by what means they extract these pearls?' "'They proceed in various ways. "'When they adhere to the shell, "'the fishermen often pull them off with pincers, "'but the most common way is to lay the oysters "'on mats of the seaweed which covers the banks. "'Thus they die in the open air, "'and at the end of ten days "'they are in a forward state of decomposition. "'Then they are plunged into a large reservoir of seawater. "'Then they are opened and washed.' "'The price for these pearls varies according to their size?' "'asked Conseil.' "'Not only according to their size,' I answered, "'but also according to their shape, their water, that is, their colour, and their lustre, "'that is, that bright sparkle which makes them so charming to the eye. "'The most beautiful are called virgin pearls, or paragons. Uh, "'They are formed alone in the tissue of the mollusk, are white, often opaque, "'and sometimes have the transparency of an opal. "'They are generally round or oval. "'The round are made into bracelets, the oval into pendants, and being more precious are sold singly. Those adhering to the shell of the oyster are more irregular in shape and sold by weight. 
Lastly, in a lower order, are classed these small pearls known under the name seed pearls. They are sold by measure and are especially used in embroidery or church ornaments. But, said Conseil, is this pearl fishery dangerous? No, I answered quickly, particularly if certain precautions are taken. What does one risk in such a calling, said Ned Land, the swallowing of some mouthfuls of seawater? As you say, Ned, by the by, said I, trying to take Captain Nemo's careless tone, are you afraid of sharks, brave Ned? I, replied the Canadian, a harpooner by profession, it is my trade to make light of them. But, said I, it is not a question of fishing for them with an iron swivel, hoisting them into the vessel, cutting off their tails with the blow of a chopper, ripping them up and throwing their heart into the sea. Then it is a question of... Precisely. In the water. In the water. Faith. With a good harpoon. You know, sir, these sharks are ill-fashioned beasts. They turn on their bellies to seize you, and in that time... Ned Land had a way of saying seas, which made my blood run cold. Uh, well, and you, Conseil, uh, what do you think of sharks? Me, said Conseil. I will be frank, sir. So much the better, thought I. If you, sir, mean to face the sharks, I do not see why your faithful servant should not face them with you. Chapter 3. A Pearl of Ten Millions the next morning, at four o'clock, I was awakened by the steward whom Captain Nemo had placed in my service. I rose hurriedly, dressed, and went into the saloon. Captain Nemo was awaiting me. "'Monsieur Aronnax,' said he, "'are you ready to start?' "'I am ready.' "'Then please to follow me.' "'And my companions, Captain? They have been told and are waiting.' "'Are we not to put on our divers' dresses?' asked I. Not yet. I have not allowed the Nautilus to come too near this coast, and we are some distance from the Manar bank, but the boat is ready and will take us to the exact point of disembarking, which will save us a long way. It carries our diving apparatus, which we will put on when we begin our submarine journey. Captain Nemo conducted me to the central staircase which led on the platform. Ned and Conseil were already there, delighted at the idea of the pleasure party which was preparing. Five sailors from the Nautilus, with their oars, waited in the boat, which had been made fast against the side. The night was still dark. Layers of clouds covered the sky, allowing but a few stars to be seen. I looked on the side where the land lay and saw nothing but a dark line enclosing three parts of the horizon, from southwest to northwest. The Nautilus, having returned during the night up the western coast of Ceylon, was now west of the bay, or rather gulf, formed by the mainland and the island of Manar. There, under the dark waters, stretched the Pintadine Bank, an inexhaustible field of pearls, the length of which is more than twenty miles. Captain Nemo, Ned Land, Conseil and I took our places in the stern of the boat. The master went to the tiller, his four companions leaned on their oars, the painter was cast off, and we sheered off. The boat went towards the south. The oarsmen did not hurry. I noticed that their strokes, strong in the water, only followed each other every ten seconds, according to the method generally adopted in the navy. Whilst the craft was running by its own velocity, the liquid drops struck the dark depths of the waves crisply, like spats of melted lead. A little billow, spreading wide, gave a slight roll to the boat, and some samphire reeds flapped before it. We were silent. What was Captain Nemo thinking of? 
perhaps of the land he was approaching, and which he found too near to him, contrary to the Canadian's opinion, who thought it too far off. As to Conseil, he was merely there from curiosity. About half-past five, the first tints on the horizon showed the upper line of coast more distinctly. Flat enough in the east, it rose a little to the south. Five miles still lay between us, and it was indistinct owing to the mist on the water. At six o'clock, it became suddenly daylight, with that rapidity peculiar to tropical regions, which know neither dawn nor twilight. The solar rays pierced the curtain of clouds piled up on the eastern horizon, and the radiant orb rose rapidly. I saw land distinctly, with a few trees scattered here and there. The boat neared Manar Island, which was rounded to the south. Captain Nemo rose from his seat and watched the sea. At a sign from him, the anchor was dropped, but the chain scarcely ran, for it was little more than a yard deep, and this spot was one of the highest points of the bank. "'Here we are, Monsieur Aronnax,' said Captain Nemo. "'You see that enclosed bay? Here in a month will be assembled the numerous fishing boats of the exporters, and these are the waters their divers will ransack so boldly.' Happily, this bay is well situated for that kind of fishing. It is sheltered from the strongest winds. The sea is never very rough here, which makes it favourable for the diver's work. We will now put on our dresses and begin our walk. I did not answer, and while watching the suspected waves, began with the help of the sailors to put on my heavy sea dress. Captain Nemo and my companions were also dressing. None of the Nautilus men were to accompany us on this new excursion. Soon we were enveloped to the throat in india-rubber clothing, the air apparatus fixed to our backs by braces. As to the Rumkorf apparatus, there was no necessity for it. Before putting my head into the copper cap, I had asked the question of the captain. They would be useless, he replied. We are going to no great depth, and the solar rays will be enough to light our walk. Besides, it would not be prudent to carry the electric light in these waters. Its brilliancy might attract some of the dangerous inhabitants of the coast most inopportunely. As Captain Nemo pronounced these words, I turned to Conseil and Ned Land, but my two friends had already encased their heads in the metal cap, and they could neither hear nor answer. One last question remained to ask of Captain Nemo. And our arms? asked I. Our guns? Guns? What for? Do not mountaineers attack the bear with a dagger in their hand, and is not steel surer than lead? Here is a strong blade. Put it in your belt, and we start. I looked at my companions. They were armed like us, and more than that, Ned Land was brandishing an enormous harpoon which he had placed in the boat before leaving the Nautilus. Then, following the captain's example, I allowed myself to be dressed in the heavy copper helmet, and our reservoirs of air were at once in activity. An instant after, we were landed, one after the other, in about two yards of water upon an even sand. Captain Nemo made a sign with his hand, and we followed him by a gentle declivity till we disappeared under the waves. Over our feet, like coveys of snipe in a bog, rose shoals of fish, of the genus Monoptera, which have no other fins but their tail. I recognised the Javanese, a real serpent two and a half feet long, of a livid colour underneath, and which might easily be mistaken for a conger eel if it were not for the golden stripes on its side. The heightening sun lit the massive waters more and more. The soil changed by degrees. To the fine sand succeeded a perfect causeway of boulders, covered with a carpet of mollusks and zoophytes. At about seven o'clock, we found ourselves at last surveying the oyster banks on which the pearl oysters are reproduced by millions. 
Captain Nemo pointed with his hand to the enormous heap of oysters, and I could well understand that this mine was inexhaustible, for nature's creative power is far beyond man's instinct of destruction. Ned Land, faithful to his instinct, hastened to fill a net which he carried by his side with some of the finest specimens. But we could not stop. We must follow the captain, who seemed to guide himself by paths known only to himself. The ground was sensibly rising, and sometimes, on holding up my arm, it was above the surface of the sea. Then the level of the bank would sink capriciously. Often we rounded high rocks, scarped into pyramids. In their dark fractures, huge crustaceans, perched upon their high claws like some war machine, watched us with fixed eyes. At this moment there opened before us a large grotto, dug in a picturesque heap of rocks, and carpeted with all the thick warp of the submarine flora. At first it seemed very dark to me. The solar rays seemed to be extinguished by successive gradations, until its vague transparency became nothing more than drowned light. Captain Nemo entered. We followed. My eyes soon accustomed themselves to this relative state of darkness. I could distinguish the arches springing capriciously from natural pillars, standing broad upon their granite base like the heavy columns of Tuscan architecture. Why had our incomprehensible guide led us to the bottom of this submarine crypt? I was soon to know. After descending a rather sharp declivity, our feet trod the bottom of a kind of circular pit. There Captain Nemo stopped, and with his hand indicated an object I had not yet perceived. It was an oyster of extraordinary dimensions, a gigantic tridacne, a goblet which could have contained the whole lake of holy water, a basin the breadth of which was more than two yards and a half, and consequently larger than that ornamenting the saloon of the Nautilus. I approached this extraordinary mollusk. It adhered by its filaments to a table of granite, and there, isolated, it developed itself in the calm waters of the grotto. I estimated its weight as 600 pounds. Such an oyster would contain 30 pounds of meat, and one must have the stomach of a gargantua to demolish some dozens of them. Captain Nemo was evidently acquainted with the existence of this bivalve, and seemed to have a particular motive in verifying the actual state of this tridacne. The shells were a little open. The captain came near and put his dagger between to prevent them from closing. Then, with his hand, he raised the membrane with its fringed edges which formed a cloak for the creature. There, between the folded plaits, I saw a loose pearl whose size equalled that of a coconut. Its globular shape of perfect clearness and admirable lustre made it altogether a jewel of inestimable value. Carried away by my curiosity, I stretched out my hand to seize it, weigh it, touch it, but the captain stopped me, made a sign of refusal, and quickly withdrew his dagger, and the two shells closed suddenly. I then understood Captain Nemo's intention. In leaving this pearl hidden in the mantle of the Tridacne, he was allowing it to grow slowly. Each year the secretions of the mollusk would add new concentric circles. I estimated its value at £500,000 at least. After ten minutes, Captain Nemo stopped suddenly. I thought he had halted previously to returning. No. By a gesture, he bade us crouch beside him in a deep fracture of the rock. His hand pointed to one part of the liquid mass, which I watched attentively. About five yards from me, a shadow appeared and sank to the ground. The disquieting idea of sharks shot through my mind, but I was mistaken, and once again it was not a monster of the ocean that we had anything to do with. 
It was a man, a living man, an Indian, a fisherman, a poor devil who I suppose had come to glean before the harvest. I could see the bottom of his canoe anchored some feet above his head. He dived and went up successfully. A stone held between his feet, cut in the shape of a sugar loaf, whilst a rope fastened him to his boat helped him to descend more rapidly. This was all his apparatus. Reaching the bottom about five yards deep, he went on his knees and filled his bag with oysters picked up at random. Then he went up, emptied it, pulled up his stone and began the operation once more, which lasted thirty seconds. The diver did not see us. The shadow of the rock hid us from sight. And how should this poor Indian ever dream that men, beings like himself, should be there under the water watching his movements and losing no detail of the fishing? Several times he went up in this way and dived again. He did not carry away more than ten at each plunge, for he was obliged to pull them all from the bank to which they adhered by means of their strong byssus. And how many of these oysters for which he risked his life had no pearl in them? I watched him closely. His manoeuvres were regular, and for the space of half an hour no danger appeared to threaten him. I was beginning to accustom myself to the sight of this interesting fishing, when suddenly, as the Indian was on the ground, I saw him make a gesture of terror, rise and make a spring to return to the surface of the water. I understood his dread. A gigantic shadow appeared just above the unfortunate diver. It was a shark of enormous size advancing diagonally, his eyes on fire, his jaws open. I was mute with horror and unable to move. The voracious creature shot towards the Indian, who threw himself on one side to avoid the shark's fins, but not its tail, for it struck his chest and stretched him on the ground. This scene lasted but a few seconds. The shark returned, and turning on his back, prepared himself for cutting the Indian in two, when I saw Captain Nemo rise suddenly, and then, dagger in hand, walk straight to the monster, ready to fight face to face with him. The very moment the shark was going to snap the unhappy fisherman in two, he perceived his new adversary, and turning over, made straight towards him. I can still see Captain Nemo's position. Holding himself well together, he waited for the shark with admirable coolness, and when it rushed at him, threw himself on one side with wonderful quickness, avoiding the shock and burying his dagger deep into its side. But it was not all over. A terrible combat ensued. The shark had seemed to roar, if I may say so. The blood rushed in torrents from its wound. The sea was dyed red, and through the opaque liquid I could distinguish nothing more. Nothing more, until the moment when, like lightning, I saw the undaunted captain hanging on to one of the creature's fins, struggling, as it were, hand to hand with the monster, and dealing successive blows at his enemy, yet still unable to give a decisive one. The shark's struggles agitated the water with such fury that the rocking threatened to upset me. I wanted to go to the captain's assistance, but, nailed to the spot with horror, I could not stir. I saw the haggard eye, I saw the different phases of the fight. The captain fell to the floor, upset by the enormous mass which leant upon him. The shark's jaws opened wide like a pair of factory shears, and it would have been all over with the captain. But quick as thought, harpoon in hand, Ned Land rushed towards the shark and struck it with its sharp point. The waves were impregnated with a mass of blood. They rocked under the shark's movements, which beat them with indescribable fury. Ned Land had not missed his aim. It was the monster's death rattle. Struck to the heart, it 
struggled in dreadful convulsions, the shock of which overthrew Conseil. But Ned Land had disentangled the captain, who, getting up without any word, went straight to the Indian, quickly cut the cord which held him to his stone, took him in his arms, and with a sharp blow of his heel, mounted to the surface. We all three followed in a few seconds, saved by a miracle, and reached the fisherman's boat. Captain Nemo's first care was to recall the unfortunate man to life again. I did not think he could succeed. I hoped so, for the poor creature's immersion was not long, but the blow from the shark's tail must have been his death blow. Happily, with the captain's and Conseil's sharp friction, I saw consciousness return by degrees. He opened his eyes. What was his surprise, his terror even, at seeing four great copper heads leaning over him? And above all, what must he have thought when Captain Nemo, drawing from the pocket of his dress a bag of pearls, placed it in his hand? This munificent charity, from the man of the waters to the poor Singalese, was accepted with a trembling hand. His wondering eyes showed that he knew not to what superhuman beings he owed both fortune and life. At a sign from the captain, we regained the bank, and following the road already traversed, came in about half an hour to the anchor which held the canoe of the Nautilus to the earth. Once on board, we each, with the help of the sailors, got rid of the heavy copper helmet. Captain Nemo's first word was to the Canadian. "'Thank you, Master Land,' said he. "'It was in revenge, Captain,' replied Ned Land. "'I owed you that.' A ghastly smile passed across the captain's lips, and that was all. To the Nautilus, said he. The boat flew over the waves. Some minutes after, we met the shark's dead body floating. It was more than twenty-five feet long. Its enormous mouth occupied one-third of its body. It was an adult, as was known by its six rows of teeth, placed in an isosceles triangle in the upper jaw. While I was contemplating this inert mass, a dozen of these ferocious beasts appeared around the boat and, without noticing us, threw themselves upon the dead body and fought with one another for the pieces. At half-past eight, we were again on board the Nautilus. There I reflected on the incidents which had taken place in our excursion to the Manar Bank. Two conclusions I must inevitably draw from it, one bearing upon the unparalleled courage of Captain Nemo, the other upon his devotion to a human being, a representative of that race from which he fled beneath the sea. Whatever he might say, this strange man had not yet succeeded in entirely crushing his heart. When I made this observation to him, he answered in a slightly moved tone, "'That Indian, sir, is an inhabitant of an oppressed country, and I am still, and shall be to my last breath, one of them.'" And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed part 7 of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. If you did, then please consider supporting The Well-Told Tale on Patreon at patreon.com slash thewelltoldtale. There's a link in the description. I'll be back next week with part 8 of the story. I hope you can join me. <laughs>